turning to Ephesians chapter 2, the book of Ephesians, it's in the New Testament, one of the letters of the Apostle Paul, the book of Ephesians in chapter 2, title today is Grace Alone in Christ Alone, Grace Alone in Christ Alone. Ephesians chapter 2, please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 1. I believe the verses will appear on the screen as well. God's word says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's ask for God's help, shall we? Father, we ask you that you would meet us now as we open your word. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of our hearts to understand, to make application, really to leave here rejoicing in your great grace to us, in your Son. So, Spirit, help me and help us, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen. 500 years and 12 days ago. A German monk named Martin Luther, as we've been talking about, he posted his 95 theses, an event which sparked what we call the Protestant Reformation. We're in a mini-series highlighting now key truths that Reformation recovered. Not key truths that were discovered, key truths that were recovered. It's been said that Luther and the Reformers, quote, returned the gospel to the Bible. They didn't discover this good news. They, they recovered it. You see, those 95 theses were about, as we've been talking about, they were about the selling of indulgences in that day. This, this was and, and is thought of as a, a way to draw on the, the merits of Christ and the merits of the saints. The thinking was you could tap into this reservoir of grace by purchasing these indulgences. And the whole religious system of Luther's day was, was like that. You did penance 
Things prescribed by a priest to recover some favor from God. You engage in the sacraments with this mindset to just kind of tap in to the grace of God by what you would do. You purchased indulgences. You paid for masses for the dead. The church was this depository of grace, this kind of bank of grace that you could tap into by your efforts. So one way the reformers returned the gospel to the Bible is captured in this phrase, sola gratia, or grace alone. But that is not a cry needed in just Luther's day. That's a cry we need today. That's a cry we need every day. If you are here and you're a believer in Jesus or you're not a believer in Jesus, listen, every day your heart drifts from grace alone. My heart every day drifts from grace alone. There there is an inevitable riptide in your heart taking you away from grace alone every day. Every day is another day where the human heart wants to merit or earn something from God. Every day the human heart wants to be an achiever, a spiritual achiever, achieving something before God such that we deserve something from God. And so every day we need to hear the good news of grace alone in Christ alone. And there's no better place, I think, to see that than Ephesians chapter 2. The verses we read. Let's, let's break it up into three parts. It's pretty meaty. So let's, let's see this in three, three essential pieces that we might grasp this idea of grace alone in Christ alone. Here's, here's the first piece. I would call it our impossible problem. First piece, our impossible problem. Beginning in verse 1, we read, And you were, you were dead. Paul writing to these now believers in Jesus saying, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So translate yourself back into that reality. Left to yourself, you're dead in sin. I read an article on CNN a while back that was entitled, World's Deadliest Plagues. Want to guess what the world's deadliest plague has been? It was the Black Death just called the plague. In the 14th century, it killed about half the population in Europe in four years. Four years, half the people gone in Europe. According to scripture, however, sin, friends, sin is the deadliest plague because no one goes without being affected. This is a killer for every single human to ever live, no exceptions. Ever since the first sin, by the first humans, we are born spiritually dead. Not sick, not wounded, but dead. That doesn't mean, doesn't mean we're always as bad as we could be in living out our lives. You can find humanity doing great deeds of courage or great acts of mercy. You can see people giving away large sums of money to help others. We can see people creating great art or great music. But it does mean we arrive into this world entirely unable to respond to God in any way that would honor or please Him. 
We arrive dead in sin, but not just dead, enslaved. Look at what, look at what spiritual deadness looks like in real time. Verse 2 goes on. You walked in these spiritual uh, sins and trespasses. Verse 2, following the course of this world, going with the stream of humanity in rebellion against God, following the prince of the power of the air, the evil spiritual being called the devil. We played follow the leader with him, essentially. Verse 3, living among the passions of our flesh, controlled by our sin nature, carrying out the desires, sinful desires of our body and mind. That's a picture of spiritual enslavement. For good reason, we call this total depravity. Total depravity. Again, not that we are always as bad as we could be, but it means sin has affected all of us. The totality of our being is affected by sin. Our bodies, our will, our emotions, our our affections, everything. Now, people will object here and say, but I, Tab, I have a free will. I can choose whatever I want. And you can choose whatever you want. The problem is in what you want. <laughs> left to ourselves, friends, left to ourselves, we, we are, what we want is pervasively corrupted by sin. And so we are enslaved. We were, we were dog-sitting recently for my sister-in-law. Really nice dog, except that she was consumed with her desire for people food. Didn't like her own food, but would run through a brick wall for a slice of bread. And if you put before this dog, let's say, a, a stack of gold bouillon, massively valuable, on the one hand, and a slice of wheat bread or white bread on the other, the dog will choose the white bread every time. She will freely choose what her nature dictates and desires. And that's how we are left to ourselves. We will never choose what is supremely valuable, God himself. Left to ourselves, left to ourselves, we will always choose as Paul says, the, the desires of our, our, our passions of our flesh, our desires of our body and our mind, they're in rebellion against God. But it gets worse. Not just dead in sin, not just enslaved to sin, we find we're under, left to ourselves, God's judgment for sin. Verse 3, end of verse 3. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature, children of wrath. And and wrath is not God flying off the handle. Wrath is not God's out-of-control temper. Wrath is God's holy, settled opposition to sin. And we are by nature here children of that wrath. You can see why I call this our impossible problem, don't you? We cannot possibly solve this problem. The apostle, God, the Holy Spirit, wanted us in verses 1 through 3 to feel the impossibility of this problem. You should be feeling 
hopeless and helpless right now, left to yourself. The dead cannot bring themselves to life. The enslaved cannot free themselves. The condemned cannot forgive themselves. I read about recently a movie, have not seen it, read about a movie called The Newsies, when one character says, we was beat when we was born. <laughs> we was beat when we was born. Talking about underprivileged children who never had a chance to succeed. Spiritually speaking, that's what Ephesians 2 is saying about us. Friends, we was beat when we was born. Set aside any thoughts of, that's not fair. God does not bow down to our limited conception of fairness. This is reality. We, we have to deal with reality. This is reality for all of us left to ourselves. It would be good to ask, is this still my view of myself left to myself? So take away thoughts of salvation for a moment. Is this still my view of Myself, left to myself. You know, all of us say, I'm, I'm not perfect. But do you realize how hopelessly impossible your problem either was or is left to yourself? It's vital, friends, that we do. It's vital that we keep this doctrine of sin, this biblical understanding of sin, in view. It's been said that the the prominent, the prominent theology taught in churches, especially in the U.S., and in the youth culture, the prominent theology has been described as, quote, Christian, moralistic, therapeutic deism. That's a mouthful, I know. Christian, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Just means God is distant from you, but you need to better yourself so that you can feel good about yourself. Matt Chandler describes it like this, quote, it posits a God who hangs out behind the scenes cheering on your Eunice <laughs> and hoping that you pick up on the clues he's left to become the best you that you can be. It has talk of Jesus, but it's really about being good and avoiding being bad. Now, what's wrong with Christian, moralistic, therapeutic deism? What's wrong with doing better, working harder to feel good about yourself? Well, there's no gospel there. There's no good news. There's no savior. Why is that? Well, certainly because there's no doctrine of sin. It's for good reason that in the 1800s, Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle wrote the following. Just catch this. J.C. Ryle wrote, a scriptural view of sin is one of the best antidotes to that vague, dim, misty, hazy kind of theology which is so painfully current in the present age, written in the 1800s. Thank you very much. Friends, we need that antidote as well. We need the antidote to vague, dim, misty, hazy theology. And the antidote is a scriptural view of sin. Please realize we must never jettison the doctrine of sin. 
It allows the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to make sense, to be intelligible. It's not old-fashioned. You don't outgrow this. It has been said by many, the doctrine of sin, it's been said to be the the bottom button of a button-down or button-up shirt. If you imagine if you were to put on a, I should have worn one today, a button-up shirt, and let's say you start buttoning at the very bottom, if you get that button to the wrong buttonhole, you get that bottom button wrong, what happens? All the other buttons are misaligned. And that's the point. If you get the bottom button, the doctrine of sin, this biblical understanding of sin, you get the antidote wrong. Everything else is askew. So it would be good for us to ask ourselves, is this view of sin still my view of sin? That left to myself, listen, left to myself, I'm dead in sin. That left to myself, I'm enslaved to sin. And a child of wrath. Friends, if you see that, if you see how impossible your problem is, then you are ready to see how amazing God's solution is. So see second with me, God's gracious solution. And we're going to spend a lot of time here. Secondly, with that in mind, with that antidote in mind, see secondly, God's gracious, gracious solution. Verse 4, but God... But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, notice, alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Martin Luther, in his day, he'd been taught a common view that before you could receive God's grace, you had to make the first move. So mankind makes the first step toward God, and God rewards that with his grace. And some of us are living that way and thinking that way. After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? That's in the Bible, isn't it? God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. The Bible says, but God, rich in mercy, intervene in your life. That's what it says. You made no move to God. God intervened in your life. Salvation is not cooperative. You don't do your part, and then God does his. Salvation comes when God acts upon you with his grace to make you alive in his son. That's why the Apostle Paul inserts right here, by the way, by grace you've been saved. But we might say, yeah, but I had to believe so that I could receive this salvation. And that's true. But why did you believe? Friend, you didn't make the first move, even though it might have seemed like it. You may have thought you were just weighing the evidence, considered all the possibilities, came to a rational conclusion, and you believed. But the reason, the cause the bottom line undergirding it all for your faith was God rich in mercy acting on you making you alive this is God's gracious solution 
Notice why he acted. He acted He acted because of the great love with which he loved us. So it's, it's God motivated by love intervening. That's why. And notice in whom, verse 5 continues, in whom to make you alive together with Christ. It's very important to connect grace alone with Christ alone. Don't disconnect those things. The reason salvation is by grace alone, out of the love of God, is because of Christ alone. His life, death, and resurrection. His perfect life lived for you. Someone obeyed in your place. His death for your sins, atoning for the wrath we have earned and deserved. His triumphant resurrection and ascension. Grace alone is because of Christ alone. I love the, I love the prophetic picture of grace. The prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 55. Just catch this. He says, come. Hear this, hear this as, it's really God's invitation to all of us, written through the prophet Isaiah. Come. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And notice, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Verse 2. Come, come buy wine. And milk, without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself and delight yourselves in rich food. Did you catch that? Come buy without money. Come pay without any money. Come feast without any price. That doesn't make sense. How is that possible? How can you buy without money? How can you feast without cost? Answer, if the price has already been paid. If the feast has already been purchased by someone else. That's how grace alone connects with Christ alone. And so we find here in Ephesians 2, the believer in Jesus, catch this, the believer in Jesus is spiritually joined to the risen Savior. That's how you're alive. The Holy Spirit joins you. You're united to Christ. Verse 6, and God raised us up, raised us up with him, with Jesus. And notice it goes, <laughs> goes beyond that. And seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in union with Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches. The riches that cannot be measured of his grace in kindness, in Christ Jesus. Now, we've been talking about grace, but we haven't yet defined it. And this is a good spot to do so. Because the biblical definition of grace might be more radical than you realize. Grace is typically defined as unmerited favor or undeserved favor, and that is a true definition, and I've used it. But it is, it is incomplete when you get down to it, as this passage shows us, because it's not that we just did not deserve his favor. We deserve the opposite of his favor. Did you catch that? 
It's not just that we, we failed to earn God's favor. What we had earned is wrath. So grace, grace is not just unmerited favor, though it is. Grace is demerited favor. It's what you forfeited. It's not just undeserved. It's, it's ill-deserved. Grace, this immeasurable riches, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like when an intruder breaks into your house and you catch the intruder, but you realize it's, it's your troubled uncle whom you love. And so you say to your troubled uncle, I should call the police, that would be justice, but I'm not. I'm not going to call the police. You're not going to get what you deserve. You're not going to go to jail. That's, that's mercy. You don't get what you deserve. But then you go beyond that. To say, not only that, I give you my TV, I give you my computer, I I empty my retirement accounts, I give you everything I've ever purchased and owned, it's all yours. We would say, that is scandalous insanity. And God says, that's grace. That is the immeasurable riches of his grace. You, you can't measure it. See, what grace does, friends, it, it, it transforms your view of God. You begin to grasp how gracious God is in himself. God is, God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And he has immeasurable riches of kindness in his son because he's also gracious. Is that how you think of God? Do you live your life thinking, though you are a Christian, you think he's just always angry with you? You feel like you're a constant disappointment in his eyes. Or do you realize he's gracious to you because of his son? He has immeasurable riches of kindness to you. Grace, grace transforms your view of God and, and grace, grace here, it transforms your view of yourself. Notice how the apostle goes on. Verse 8. For, just let me say it again, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, talking about salvation here, this salvation is not your own doing. It, the salvation, is the gift of God, not a result of works. Notice, so that no one may boast. It's almost like, in case we've missed the point so far, he says again, salvation is a gift you receive, not something you've earned or merited. It's a gift you receive, and by implication, your faith and your repentance are gifts as well. So, the entire thing is a gift, which he says eliminates all grounds for human boasting. Do you see how this changes your view of yourself? 
It eliminates all thought of human achievement before God. It it pulls the rug out from any sense of boasting in anything you and I can do except to boast in Christ. This is how we know that grace alone has gripped us, friends. This is how you can know. By asking, where is my boast? What am I boasting in before God? What do you boast in? Where's your boast? And not just for salvation. Really, for the entirety of the Christian life. From start to finish. In the entirety of the Christian life, you can apply this. And the Apostle Paul, he, he talked about how Jesus had taken him as a, really as a murderer, as a blasphemer, as a persecutor of Christians, and made him into an apostle. And he was, as an apostle, arguably the greatest theologian and greatest missionary in church history. Pretty amazing resume. An apostle who had achieved so much. And yet here's how he summed up his achievements in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Here's how he sums up what he'd accomplished. He says, notice, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, notice, I worked harder than any of them. I achieved a lot. Though it was not I but the grace of God that is with me. I worked hard, but it wasn't me. It was him. It was his grace toward me, in me, working through me. No no, no surprise, he summed up the whole, I think, the whole Christian life earlier in the same letter, saying to the Corinthians, the following in chapter 4 he said this what you corinthians what what do you have that you did not receive Isn't that amazing what do you have that you did not receive any it's rhetorical isn't it anything the answer is no what do you have that you did not receive if then you received it why do you notice why do you boast just like verse 10 of ephesians 2 why do you boast as if you did not receive it. Let let that sink into you. Everything you have that is not wrath, everything that you experience that is not hell, is something you have received, not, not achieved. But we want to boast in what we have achieved. Just think think about this with me. Just tease this out. Don't we want to boast? Don't we want to boast in our parenting? If our parenting's going well, if our kids are doing well? Don't we want to boast in that? I, I think, look at what I've achieved. My excellent parenting has been rewarded by God, and I have achieved good things. I know God is involved, but he's blessing my faithfulness and giving me what I've achieved. My kids' good behavior. Or we boast in our money, our income, or our career. The measure of success in our culture is how much money do you have? What's your position? Then your success. 
by what you've achieved. We might humbly say, "Mm, God has blessed me. But we know in the back of our heads, he blessed the right person. He blessed me because I worked harder than any of them. I am smarter, quicker, more educated. And so he blessed the right guy. Look at all I have achieved. I think think we can boast even in our, our health. If we're healthy, we're feeling good, we're healthier than most, we can think, somehow God is rewarding me by my performance. I mean, yeah, I take good care of myself, eat right, whatever, but you know, at the end of the day, I've been a pretty good kid. So God's given me health as a result, something I've achieved. Or I just boast in my spiritual practices. I boast in my my Christian growth. I've achieved Christian growth through my consistent quiet time, my, my superior prayer life, my earnest Bible reading, and my exceptional serving in the local church. Therefore, I have achieved Christian growth. Now, I'm not minimizing the importance of parenting. I'm not minimizing the importance of working hard. I'm not minimizing taking care of yourself. I'm not minimizing the means of grace in the Christian life. I'm just saying we can easily make the entirety of the Christian life a ladder we're climbing to achieve. Or maybe more accurately, it's more like the game shoots and ladders, which I think is a demonic game. (laughs) Because you just land on that one spot and you go up, but you land on the wrong spot, you shoot down. It's wrong. It goes against everything that we uh, believe as Americans. I bet that's how we think of the Christian life. It's up and down depending on my performance. So when things are not going well in the parenting, when the children are not doing well, we think God must be punishing me. I have forfeited favor somehow. And that's why my children are not doing well. Or when the money is tight, or we get laid off in the job, or we get passed over for, for a promotion, we think, first thought, is it not? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong to forfeit God's favor? How did I displease God and so fail to achieve? Or, or in suffering, when the health goes, when the sickness comes, when the disease is diagnosed. Friends, do we not, do we not think somehow I have forfeited God's favor because I'm suffering? And grace alone says otherwise. Grace alone says, from the moment you were made alive in Christ until the day you are glorified in his presence and everything in between is ultimately all of grace. And so our boast is him alone. That's what God is after. My only boast is Christ. Do do you see how grace is? can transform the Christian life. It's not a ladder you're climbing for achievement. It's not a game of shoots and ladders where you might go shooting down. It's a feast that costs you nothing because it's already been paid for. You just come at feast. 
Now, that should make us a little uncomfortable. We should squirm in our seats at this point. Maybe you're doing so. Because, Tab, are you then saying the Bible teaches it doesn't matter how I live? And so we should see, thirdly, briefly, grace's transforming effect. Thirdly, grace's transforming effect. We've already been talking about this in ways, because grace transforms your view of God. You see him as gracious, immeasurable riches of kindness. And it transforms your view of yourself. You realize, I have no ground for human boasting. My boast is in Christ. But, but grace also means to transform how you live, practically speaking. See, a common objection to what I've said so far is, Tab, you're saying it doesn't matter how I live. If people took this seriously, there would be spiritual pandemonium. And, and you can read Romans chapter 6 later on for a fuller argument here. But just look at verse 10. Look at verse 10 of Ephesians 2. I think Paul addresses that here. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So catch the connection with verse 9. He's just said salvation is by grace alone, not by works. Then we read, we are his workmanship, God's masterpiece, God, God's work of art, newly created in Christ. For what purpose? For good works. So catch the apostle's point. Those who are truly alive in Christ, those who are truly joined to the risen Jesus by grace alone, will show that they're alive by how they live, including with good works. It's kind of like when you look at a tree and it, it sprouts a leaf and then it grows an apple or a lemon or an orange. You say, that tree is alive and I know it's alive because it's bearing some fruit that shows life. That's what verse 10 is saying. Your good works don't earn something. Your good works don't merit something. They are fruit of truly experiencing Grace alone, in Christ alone. So grace, grace transforms how you view God. Grace transforms how you view yourself. And then grace transforms how you live. It's not an excuse to sin. It's fuel. It's meant to be fuel in your heart for a transformed life. I love how the story Tim Keller, New York City pastor, tells of reaching out to a woman who was not a Christian at the time. And she'd grown up in church, always hearing, in effect, she had to be saved by her good works, by being a good person, you might say. So she said to Tim Keller, she said, but in your church, I hear that I'm saved by grace alone. So it doesn't matter how much I pray, doesn't matter how good I am, doesn't matter what I do, I'm saved by grace. She said, I wonder why more churches don't preach that. Tim Keller wisely said, well, why do you think more churches don't preach that? She said, I'll tell you why churches don't preach that. She said, if I'm saved by my works, then God cannot demand anything more from me. I'm, I'm just like a taxpayer, and I have my rights. I've paid my dues, so you can't ask anything more of me. But she said, if I really believed I was saved by grace, then there would be nothing he could not ask of me. I'd have to be completely given to him. I, I'd do everything for him, and I'd want to. 
I'd want to. And soon after, she did become a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you see the connection? She just described Ephesians 2, verse 10, and the connection with verses 1 through 9. That's what grace does. It transforms you. Transforms your view of God. Transforms your view of yourself. And transforms your life to make you eager as God's workmanship in Christ to do good works. I mean, it transforms how you relate to other people because you're aware of grace alone in Christ alone. So, don't let this be just a slogan. Every day we drift from this. This afternoon you're going to drift from this. Tomorrow morning you're going to drift from this. It's not just a slogan. It's a reality. It's good news you and I need every single day. Grace alone in Christ alone. And we want to celebrate that good news by taking the Lord's Supper together.